when I talk about contracts, everybody wants to talk about compensation first. And obviously, that's important. Everybody has bills to pay. But it is not the only part of your contract that you need to pay attention to. So we're going to talk about the other parts of the contract, and then I promise we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about compensation. I put kind of some facts down here of why I think this is a tough subject. You know, PA school prepares us very poorly for this, just like medical school prepares our physician partners very poorly to be businessmen and bosses and billing experts. The fact of the matter is most of us are really not good negotiators. I once heard a definition of negotiation I love. Negotiation is the art of getting you to do what I want and think it was your idea. Okay, right? That's negotiation. And the better you are at being a negotiator, that's going to that's going to help you get, you know, the free car wash when you go through the drive station. That's going to get your husband to do the dishes at night cuz he thinks it's going to benefit him. So you have to think of negotiation as a skill that you really want to go out and research. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but go to Barnes & Noble, go to Borders, get a coffee, say, can I see your section on negotiation? And read tons and tons of books. I honestly do this probably at least for five or six hours a year where I will go to Barnes & Noble and try to learn how to be a better negotiator. So no PA left behind. We're going to make this lecture geared to the person who needs the most amount of help. So I'm going to poll the audience. Who has attended my lectures in the past about this subject? Okay, medium amount. Who has been in practice a year or less? Two years or less? Five years or less? Okay. Um, who is with the same employer as their first dermatology job? I'm not. Okay, good amount. How many of us have a written contract? Oh, that makes me happy. And then how many of us are happy with our compensation package? Okay, that makes me excited too. Okay, so that gives me a sense of kind of where we are. So why do you need a contract? Well, you know what, verbal agreements are great. A handshake was probably great back in the day, but you need a contract. And I'm glad that message, the majority of you raised your hand. Disagreements occur, practices are sold, Employers, my first employer, suddenly passed away at 55. You need a contract. It can be detailed. I've seen 25, 30-page contracts written in legalese that was hard to get through. And I've seen two, three-page documents clearly created in Word between an employer and a doctor, or an employer and a PA. So you do not need to have this superfluous, huge contract. What you need is a piece of paper that sets the expectations for you for the employer and a third person judge who could look down at this piece of paper and say this was not the agreed upon expectation. The one exception to working without a contract would be if you have a letter of intent for a new employer. Never step one teeny little toe into an employer's office unless you have at least a letter of intent which would delineate the key points of your contract and would also say when you will be provided with a written contract. It's also advisable to hire an attorney to look over the contract that you have. Every single sentence should be understandable. If there's a sentence in your contract and you don't know what it means, ask. Say to the doctor, hey, can you explain what this sentence means to me? If they define it and they say, oh, th this means that if you go on maternity leave, your job will be safe. Say, oh, I understand that the way you explained it. Can we change the wording to say what you just said to me verbally? 
So don't sign a single sentence that you don't understand, and this is definitely where a lawyer can be helpful. So look at a contract with a pessimistic eye. You know, everything's going to be great. I'm sure you're going to love this employer forever. But ask yourself with every sentence, what would happen if this practice was sold? What would happen if it just wasn't a fit? What would happen if the doctor started having an affair with the esthetician? What would happen if the doctor's wife became the office manager? What if, what if, what if? So anatomy of a contract absolutely has to be in there is time period. And what time period should your contract be for? I really recommend that contracts be for one year, especially if you're a new employer, employee at this site. If you're really at the top of the pay structure and you're really comfortable with your employer, you could do a three or at the most a five-year contract. Contracts that automatically renew are just setting you up for a situation of apathy. Why on earth would your employer be willing to negotiate with you unless something was going to happen if you didn't negotiate? So you need to have an endpoint to this contract. You also need to initiate your own contract renewal and your own contract negotiation. So let's go through this scenario. Let's pretend I'm a supervising doctor and I'm busy and I have a family and I'm trying to balance a practice. And up in my calendar, I see, oh my gosh, my PA's contract is up. I'm gonna go and offer her more money. Not gonna happen, okay? You have to initiate this, and when do you want to initiate it? At least 60 days, if not 90 days, before your contract is up. When do you want to start preparing, gathering research, what do I want, what's of value to me? Probably five to six months before your contract is up. This is like applying to PA school. Think about how long you prepared for that. Put those into terms of your contract as well. So bring it up at least 60 days, if not 90. Two weeks is just unacceptable. And you know what? I can't tell you how many people, in fact, I just got an email last week. I'm meeting tomorrow with my office manager, doctor, blah, blah, blah. I'm not checking my email every night, and you, you lost the ship. Like, the ship has sailed, sister. You need to get on this months ago. So first year, remember, make it only one year. And if, uh, you know, you want to talk about payment of bonuses if you don't work a full year, um, this is sort of a little bit more, second paragraph, a little more for the advanced contract. Designate duties, what will you do? How many hours a week, any evenings, any weekends? What offices will you go to? And that can be changed. You can say, hey, if you buy a satellite office, that's fine. We can change any of this contract if we just mutually agree upon it. What you don't want is them to say, hey, guess what? I got this site, a nursing home 80 miles from your house. You're going to be there on Tuesdays. See you next week. Okay, so you want this contract to protect where you're going to go. Will you do hospital consults? Will you take call? Are you going to go to nursing homes? Any restrictions on moonlighting? If they don't bring this up, obviously you don't want to put it in there. Your contract should state your vacation days, your sick leave, your CME time, and your CME reimbursement. Your benefits should be commiserate to other professional-level medical employees. So if you are getting the same vacation time as the $10 an hour lady who answers the phone, unacceptable, okay? Your compensation, your package, your benefits should be much more like a moonlighting physician, an employee physician of the practice. Every employer should pay for CME reimbursement. I put the average in brackets there. You know, CME reimbursement and providing professional dues is a direct benefit to the practice. And I still, I, you know, I'm shocked. I've never had a conversation with a physician 
that I haven't gotten them to see that they need to have a generous CME budget. I'll say, don't you want your PA to be the smartest, best trained, cutting edge medical professional? Who, what employer would say no to that sentence? I say the only way they can do that is to go to CME every year. You also need to explain to your dermatologist that we need a lot more CME than they do. One of my supervising doctors is grandfathered in. He doesn't even need CME. And that not only do we need dermatology-specific CME, but because our boards are back in primary care, we need to explain to them, you know, I really need to, like, attend a lecture on, you know, when I graduated, there was no HPV vaccine. There was no Viagra. Like, that, that's going to be on my test next time. I need to go to primary care conferences about two years before I recertify. So explaining that. Licensure fees, health insurance, professional dues, explain the real numbers there. Being, you know, an SDPA fellow member is about a tenth of the price of being an AAD fellow member. So either have, you know, three professional memberships or $500 or less. For $500 or less, you could get quite a few memberships in there. Disability insurance, retirement benefits, again, similar to other professional employees. Maternity leave, which actually, obviously, was not my contract as of two years ago. I can find no data about maternity leave. The AAPA doesn't collect it. I know of no resource. I've heard of everything from more organizations, healthcare systems that offer four to five months off paid. I've heard of offices that say, so you're having a baby on Thursday, you'll be back, what, Monday, Tuesday, okay? <laughs> You know, if your office has greater than 50 employees, they must comply with Federal, fam, sorry, Federal Family Medical Leave Act, FMLA. All FMLA says is that they can give you, with a doctor's note, 12 weeks off, and your job is secure. You will not be replaced or fired. It does not have to be paid. They do not need to continue your benefits, like health care premiums, during those 12 weeks. So you might be asked to give the office the $500 or $700 or $1,000 a month that your practice is paying for your Aetna or Blue Cross insurance. Okay, so FMLA, really, only 50 or more employees, and it really is only securing your job. Number of weeks, paid versus unpaid, is there going to be a change in your bonus threshold? You know, realistically, I think you need to, to look at the practice. Not only is the practice not going to be making income while you're gone, because you're not going to be seeing patients, but the doctors are going to have to work harder to cover your patients that are calling in or need to be seen, and the costs are really not going to change. Is your medical assistant going to be fired or not paid for the 10 or 12 weeks you're not there? So I think you need to realistically kind of look at this from an employer perspective. When do you want to talk about maternity leave? When you are not pregnant. Do not announce that you're pregnant and then discuss it, because at that point, the, your employer's already panicked. They're like, oh my god, they're not going to be here, we're going to have to cover them, and then what are we going to do about their assistance? Oh, this is so crappy for me. You want to negotiate this years before you have a child. This needs to be something you discuss for a far, far off in the future picture, even if you're printing a pregnancy soon. So malpractice insurance, that is actually what my lecture is on tomorrow because I found myself talking for 20, 30 minutes about this slide. So please come to the malpractice lecture tomorrow and we're going to dive in to the different types of malpractice insurance, appropriate coverage limits, and some malpractice cases. So um, again, we'll talk about that tomorrow. And your contract should state what type of malpractice is being provided for you and state that you will be given a copy of your malpractice policy yearly. And again, we'll talk about that tomorrow. 
Your contract should state how and why you can be terminated. And you know, in terms of termination, you really want to allow for a peaceful parting. If, you know, some places are not a fit. You get in there and the doctor says, yeah, IUD and C melanomas, okay? That, you may just find out that that's not a practice for you. And there should be a way for you both to just part peacefully. Restrictive covenants, uh, don't bring this up unless they do. It's basically to prevent a PA from taking patients to a new practice. Um, if you sign a restrictive covenant, you should be clear about the location that your restrictive covenant applies to. It should clearly state that you could practice in other areas of medicine. Hey, turns out I don't like dermatology or I don't like you, I don't like working for you. If I go to the hospital a mile down the road, 10 feet down the road, and start doing pre-admission physicals, nobody's gonna be coming following me to the hospital for pre-admission physicals, okay? So I'm not taking patients. So you need to clearly explain that to employers because that's different than physicians. They can't go to the hospital and do pre-admission physicals. They're a board-certified dermatologist. They don't have the flexibility that we do. You know, in reality, I think that restrictive covenants or non-compete clauses are really harmful to the public. They take away specialized providers. Oh, I can't work in this town anymore because I signed this big restrictive covenant. I'm going to go do pre-admission physicals. They just lost someone who's had a decade, two decades of dermatology experience. The AMA, the SDPA, the AAPA all have position papers against the use of restrictive covenants for doctors and medical professionals. So I'd have that discussion and print out the AMA Code of Ethics that says they don't think physicians should use this. This is their professional organization. So again, we talked about specifying location, make sure it's a reasonable limit, make sure you can practice in another area of medicine, consider a financial buyout. You know, in reality, are the cops going to show up at another practice and say, put that scalpel down, you can't see a patient, you signed a restrictive covenant? No. Are you going to go through legal fees, court appearances, mudslinging, other doctors who say, oh, I don't want to insult my colleague. I know they're in this big legal battle, so they're not going to be as apt to hire you. Whereas if there's a dollar amount, let's say you meet some new dermatologist who says, hey, let's go into practice together. And you guys open up a practice two miles down the road, 50-50. And you say, you know what, as part of the small business loan to start this new practice, we need to pay my former practice $50,000 to get out of my restrictive covenant. I think that's easier, cleaner, and done. Um, you know, in the end, will a restrictive covenant, non-compete clause, hold up in a court of law? In some states, probably not, and it's important to look at what has historically happened in your state. And some states, like Tennessee, have said, restrictive covenants, no way, they hurt the community, can't happen in the state of Tennessee. Who knows, look up your own state law, look up what the history is, make sure you're comfortable signing a restrictive covenant. I know many people who would say a PA should not sign a restrictive covenant. I know people would say a doctor shouldn't sign or give a restrictive covenant. It goes against the basic idea of wanting to help people. Having said that, my doctor said this is a deal breaker. It was absolutely something I would not be at my practice now if I didn't sign. So speaking of lawyers, be aware of contracts that state how disputes will be handled. Just be aware of what that is. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer here. And certainly be aware of contracts that assign all legal fees to you, which I can't believe I've actually seen. You don't want to sign that. Your contract should also have a clause that allows you and your lawyer access to patient medical records if a lawsuit is brought against you. In reality, if a lawsuit is brought against you, you absolutely could get the files anyway. 
after uh, you know going through lawyers and attorneys and a subpoena. So put it in there, and then it's nice and easy. You don't have to spend a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars getting your lawyer to insist that you get a copy of those medical records. More and more, I'm advising PAs to put in their contract that they will have a dedicated assigned one, two, or three medical assistants or nurses, and that directly relates to productivity. A lot of great stuff on the SDPA forum about it. And I wrote an article that also really goes into the math of that subject for practical dermatology, which you can email me if you don't have access to. But if you go to practical dermatology website, all of their previous uh, journals are all available online. So get a copy of the employee manual. When it's not addressed in your contract, it would fall under the general employee manual for the office, so you should get a copy of that annually. Okay, so now, now we're at the show me the money part of the presentation. Okay, we're gonna talk about compensation. So what are some ways that PAs in dermatology are compensated? Salary or hourly rate. We're gonna talk about the second one, which is the most common compensation structure for dermatology PAs where you get a salary plus a production-based compensation, which is known as a bonus. Why do I like that term better? You know, a bonus seems like a treat. It's a gift. I'm gonna give you this gift of this bonus. Now, it is compensation based on my productivity in the practice. It's a subtle psychological difference, but I think it really is a more appropriate title for what most of us are getting in a bonus. If you do have a bonus structure that is, comp that is compensated on production, you need to get regular reports of your billings and your collections, and that needs to be stated in your contract word for word. Monica will be getting a copy of her billings and collections for her services monthly or quarterly at the least if it's at a small practice. Here's where we need to take a step back. You really need to know two things to get fairly compensated. What are you worth? Why do you get a paycheck? Couple answers to that. What do you bring into the practice financially? That's part of what you're worth. What do you do for the practice? If you're in charge of the EMR, if you hire and train medical assistants, if you oversee the aesthetic center, if you do advertising for the aesthetic center, if you're the OSHA officer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things bring value to the practice. In order to truly know what you're worth, part of that picture has to be what you're collecting, what you're earning for the practice. So you absolutely need to know your billings and collections. Most people who I would say are in the top 20% of compensated dermatology PAs probably know their billings and collections from the top of their head for the last three months, okay? So you must understand the process of billing and coding. You know, it's not enough to just say, give me a report. You need to be a billing and coding expert. You know what, billing and coding sucks. It's confusing, it changes all the time, it's a totally dry, boring subject, but you need to know how to do it and you need to know how to do it right. You need to learn the difference between a 99214 and a 99213 because you may be performing the higher level service and afraid to bill it and not getting paid appropriately for the office and therefore not bringing in as much money and therefore not getting paid as much. You need to know about Medicare, Incident 2, the rules, 
PQRI reporting an incentive to melanoma, to, uh, to Medicare. We need to all be aware that consultation codes are probably going away January 1st for everyone. So you, even though you have to send that letter because Bob Smith refers to you, Medicare is probably getting rid of those codes. They're not going to be reimbursing it. Shocking. Guess what? Our doctors are going to feel that impact. And we need to know how we're going to offset that impact. So you need to become a billing and coding expert. The other thing I recognize about some of the highest paid, well-compensated PAs is their physicians consider them essential. They feel that Monica cannot be replaced because she's my billing and coding expert. She's the one who came back from this conference and told me about Medicare and had a plan for how we're going to offset that, or are we going to continue to accept Medicare? Okay, so you need to be a practice and bill a billing expert not only for yourself, but this is an area most doctors hate. And if you can step to the forefront and say, Dr. Smith, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to get us prepared for RAC audits. I'm going to go over once a month with the providers what a 1-4 is different than a 1-3. When you use a 25 modifier versus 79, you will become essential because the topic sucks. Okay. So besides, this is kind of the next step for some of us who are more advanced in the room, who know what a 1-4 is versus a 1-3 and when to use a 25 modifier. The next step beyond that, as you delve into billing and coding, and I really think you need to spend no less than five hours a year periodically reviewing billing and coding. I try to review it once a month, okay? You then need to go beyond that and see how your own office handles billing and coding. So I had a, a, con, a, a, a client who was working with me with contracts, and she was making this horrible, terrible salary. And she gave me a report of her, of her billings. And I said, this is great. You're billing awesome. I mean, like $800,000, $900,000 a year. So the office is probably collecting, you know, $750, something for your practice. We went and we found out her practice was collecting 30% of what she would bill. Turns out the physician, his cousin, was the manager of the billing department, not only not doing a good job, but she decided that her cousin, the doctor, made enough money. So anyone that had like a copay or um, a balance or lost their insurance or um, you know had a, a big deductible, she was just going to write off. That needs to be discussed. Those are your services. How many people know how outstanding balances are handled at their practice? How about bundled services? How about choosing what HMOs you're going to accept? How many of us have actually said, you know what, this patient qualifies as incident too. I'm going to track the entire process from the bill going out to getting the money back in to making sure I get credit and making sure it's billed to Medicare correctly. I'm not going to ask a show of hands, but probably not a lot of us. Okay, so back to salary. So common formula, base percentage of total collections over a certain threshold. Million dollar question I get asked all the time, so what's that threshold? You want to set that threshold at a reasonable and obtainable level. I say to doctors and practices all the time, if your PA can never reach that threshold or can just barely reach it, it actually becomes a disincentive because it just pisses that PA off. Like, oh, I'm just so close. It's so high anyway. I'm just never going to get it. Screw it. I'm just not going to try that hard for the practice. Total cost to the practice is a reasonable threshold to set. And this should be a firm amount, not collections minus costs, because if you just leave it at costs, the you know, we're going to charge you some rent. 
and we're going to charge you some of the office manager salary. And we're going to charge you some of that new laser you have no ownership on. So it needs to specifically state either what your costs are, or costs are, or even better, a firm dollar amount. What I absolutely hate is arbitrary multipliers of the base. It doesn't make sense. You're going to bonus after you make three times your salary. Really, why? And you know, I'd love to use this example. You know, doctor, my supervising doctor, you would never say, "Hey, I just asked another dermatologist, and they said they use combination products of antibiotics and benzoclin together." They say, really, why is that? I don't know. They said so. Of course not. We know why benzoclin and duac works better. We know about antibiotic resistance. The same thing should be true for your contract. There should not be a just because. Why is the threshold set at that level? Because that's your total cost to the practice. What's the percentage? I would say that the average is anywhere from like 20 to 25% for a decent bonus. And again, this all depends on how good your accounts receivable is. So if your billing office is not collecting the money, you're never going to see a bonus. There was a, a great article by Inga Elsie, and she talked about what do you do if your employer will not give you this data. And I would cut this article out and show it to an employer. If any employer does not want to share this information, being, being what you bill and, and what gets collected, whether or not you have a productivity bonus, you have a responsibility to yourself, your license, your reputation to monitor the billing and services performed by you and under your name. So let's say you're at an office and this is the first time you're hearing this. You think, oh my God, how do I ask for my billing and coding? What you don't want to do is say, you know what, I want to get a raise. Can you show me what I'm collecting for the office? Because I'm going to ask for more. Obviously, you're going to hit friction if you say it that way. So how do you want to approach your employer if you're already, this is, you know, you've already missed the boat, you're not with a new contract where you're making this part of your negotiation? You want to say, you know what, I attended this great SDPA meeting. I'm so glad you contributed to me attending. Thank them. And I was at this great lecture about billing and coding, and, and I understand that Medicare is stuff in their consultation rates, and I, I really want to become more involved with the billing and coding here so we can make sure that you're getting the fair amount of reimbursement for our services. Doesn't that sound a lot better than, hey, I want to raise, so show me the numbers? And do that. I mean, really be helpful. Be helpful to your billing department. Be helpful to the doctors. It should not just be, I want my numbers because I want to get paid more. It should also be, hey, Look at this, you know what, there's an Inga Elsie article that says we're way low on the percentage of collections. Or hey, you know what, I pulled these five charts and for them I think that we both could have built a one four. That's a huge part of a practice that you could bring to it. So what do you do if you really can't get the numbers even after those things? Um, you could base it off of how many patients per day. You could take a random sample and then ask, hey, I wrote down ten people's names. Could you give me in six weeks, you know, how much was collected for these patients? In the end, you really have to ask yourself, is this the right practice for you? Why won't they share that data for you, to you? In my mind, there's only one possible reason, and it's not a good reason. Okay, so if you can't get that information, you may not have a reputable employer. So 2004 salary survey done by the SDPA, 28% of our respondents said that their biggest frustration in their job is salary negotiations, so you're not alone. I give lectures about this, I get paid for this. It took me three months to negotiate my last contract and it was all I could think about and talk about. My poor girlfriends had to hear about it nightly. So it's difficult even for someone who's supposed to be an expert. 
Bonus structure and benefit negotiations were also difficult for our colleagues. Here's, you know, a, a statement I like to say to physicians. Out of the respondents who said they were looking for a new position, compensation was the number one answer. Compensation is not the whole ball of wax. Money doesn't buy happiness. But if you don't feel like you are fairly compensated, you will not be at that practice long term. 2007, the SDPA did their last salary survey. Has anybody seen that data? I know you've seen that data. Nobody else? Who's, who's gone online and looked at it? Okay. Um, it cost the SDPA $10,000. Hmm, makes me sad. It was sent to uh, about 1,800 PAs. Only 33% responded. I, I don't know what to, to do. It, it makes the data, honestly, almost worthless. The people who responded were newer to the field and were generally more unhappy with their compensation structure, okay? I'm still gonna give you some of the information. So average base pay between 70,000 and 100. Obviously commiserate with experience. The longer you're in dermatology, the more you should make. So when people say, what's the average number dermatology should make? I don't know because guess what? We're not all the same. So don't ask me that question. PAs with three to five years experience, we're talking base salary, okay? This is not bonus, this is not benefits, this is base salary, your, your paycheck twice a week, or twice a month. Mm -hmm. $80,000 to 100, greater than six years, greater than $100,000 in salary. The majority of respondents, 70% received a bonus. The average threshold for a bonus was 169.3, okay? That was the average threshold for when you start to bonus. So let's plug in some numbers, okay? So we're back to the office. You're preparing your research to talk to the doctor. Let's say average package, you're getting $90,000 in base. That's that paycheck twice a month. About $15,000 in benefits. And really, get a specific number. How much is it for the health insurance there? How much will they contribute for your disability insurance? How, what are the things that if you died tomorrow, the bills would stop? They wouldn't have to pay your malpractice insurance anymore. So that's a benefit. They wouldn't have to pay your CME anymore. That's a benefit. Around 30,000 in overhead. And again, this depends on your practice and definitely how many medical assistants work for you. The staff that should be included in that number are the staff that would be fired if you evaporated tomorrow. If you died tomorrow and you didn't show up to work, would they pay the office manager less? Probably not. Would they have less people at check-in or check-out? Probably not. Would my two medical assistants be let go? Yes, probably. Okay, so that should be in that factor. And then I also like to include sometimes a $25,000 supervising fee. This is what you get for just being accessible to me for questions and signing my charts in some states. In this compensation package, it would make the threshold for bonusing $160,000. So pretty reflective of that $169,000. 25%, this could be right in a contract, 25% of monies collected over 160,000 will be paid to the PA as production-based incentive compensation, not bonus, and the practice will keep the vast majority 75%. You can say to that employer, I'm gonna pay my own salary, I'm gonna pay my own benefits, I'm gonna pay the staff that works with me, I'm gonna make sure there's $25,000 in your pocket before I get any sort of bonus or production-based compensation. What other employee at the office can say that? 
not the office manager, not the nurse, okay? So you need to realize really what you're worth, what you're bringing into the practice. So let's take a step back, let's do the math. Let's say you're collecting $450,000 for the practice a year, which is unbelievably attainable, okay? And that salary survey talks about averages in terms of collections. You know, as an aside, I had a conversation once with a, another leader who uh, is a very proliferative, highly paid PA, and we were looking at an, an article, I think from Galderma, talking about residences and practices and what's collected. And uh, he made a comment, like, did you see that article? They said that that doctor was only collecting like a million dollars a year. And I'm thinking, like, I wish I collected a million dollars a year. And he's like, Psh, that would be my slowest year ever. I was like, oh my God. Okay, I hope you do make a lot of money, okay? So it's a little bit of perspective of what you bring into the practice. So let's take that $450,000 minus the threshold. That means there's $290,000 in slush money, extra money, profit money to be shared. If you got 25% of that 290, you would get a bonus of 72,500, add that to your $90,000 income, and make what I think is a respectable PA salary of 162,000. Who would be happy making $162,000? I think it sounds good. Who would be even happier if they were the doctor who got to make their six-figure salary plus the $217,000 that's left over from this amount and the $25,000, meaning just to supervise you, they're gonna make almost a quarter of a million dollars in profit. Hell, I wanna supervise you for that, okay? That is great money, not to mention increased access to care. The practice is growing. The practice is more profitable. The practice is more sellable. Increased physician quality of life. Maybe they don't take call. Maybe they make it to their kid's recital. I think this sounds like a win-win situation. And if you're at an employer who doesn't feel that way, are they a good employer? In that last salary survey, 2007, the majority of respondents didn't know their collections. Oh, that makes me so sad. Who, let's, do you, let's raise your hand. Do you know your collections for the last year? Who knows? Okay, better than what the, the salary survey would say. Mean budget for CME, about that $1,700 mark. I also think that a lot of people are very smart about just saying two conferences a year. Because then you don't have, you know, oh my gosh, you got to meet McDonald's for lunch. Uh, CME days, you know, 7.6, and days off per year, 22.4. I gave you a lot of averages, okay? The biggest negotiation mistake you can make is to sell yourself as just being average. Imagine you apply to PA school that way. Here, here, here's your, your, uh, your application. I'm about average, I get about average grades, I'll probably do average on my rotations, and I'll probably provide about average quality healthcare. Who would've gone in? Of course not. What did you do to get into PA school? You sold yourself. This is why I'm the best applicant. This is why I'm gonna provide great healthcare. So you really wanna avoid the mistake about being just average. A lot of physicians will talk to other physicians and say, you know what? Down the street, the PAs down the street are only making $70,000, Abby. I can't believe you're asking for this six-figure salary. And I'll say, you know what? This is not about the PA down the street. This is not about the average PA. This is about you and me. This is about our relationship 
this is about how much you value me at the practice. Do you think I'm just average? Do you think that I just provide average health care? Because I think I'm great, I think you're great, and I think we provide great health care. Okay, so you need to bring it back about you and that supervising doctor. I love the SDPA forum. You know, there used to be an old, like, Yahoo, or was it Google list? There was a ton of people who participated with it. And now, almost, you know, the majority of members don't go on the forum, and there's really a lot of great advice on the SDPA website on the discussion forum. And I wanted to go over some quotes from a couple PAs. I hope they're at this conference. I don't know if they are. But if you see them, tell them, I'm going to join the forum because you put such great quotes. And Abby quoted you, and I love your quotes. So this is a quote from a PA, Jason Roddick, who I think may be in California. Proper negotiation of a contract will dictate that you sell the supervising physician on what he or she has to gain from the contract and not emphasize what you will make. You never want to say the percentage that you will keep without saying the doctor's percentage. And it may sound retarded in your head. They'll know what you're saying. Well, you know, it's a lot easier to say, you want 25%. That's a lot. 20%, I think, is fair. Really, you, you need to keep 80% of the excess income? What I thought was fair is if I get 25% and you get the majority 70%. You know, I think at that you'll make a profit margin of about a quarter million dollars. Is that acceptable for supervising me? Ask it in a way that's a little bit harder to negotiate from. The key to setting up a successful contract is one in which the SP feels as though there is a good return on their investment, all the while parent paying you a fair stake in the practice. Here's a you know, great example from Paul, Maven, also on the forum. I get questions sometimes. That's another great question. Well, I have three years' experience. How much should I make? I don't, do you work 10 hours a week? Do you work 40 hours a week? And what do you do when you're at work? Are you doing Botox and Restylane and excisions and pumping through 40 patients a day? Or are you seeing 10 patients a day, acne work follow-ups only? Okay, so that's again about bringing in your worth as opposed to what every average PA should make. So Paul's example was, let's say a PA is seeing 10 patients per day at about $100 per patient, which is important to ask, what is the average that this practice collects per patient? Times the 48 weeks, that PA might only be collecting $240,000 in billing for the practice. Well, if you're collecting maybe 70% of that, the practice has only got about 168 in the bank account. So if you subtract your cost and the MA, there really isn't that much left over for the doctor. Guess what? Some doctors are happy with that. Some doctors are just happy that you're increasing patient access to care, that you're sharing call with them, that they have a member of the opposite gender as a provider in their practice. So some are okay with that, but is that PA, should that PA make the same as the person who's working five days a week, chugging through 40, 50 patients a day, doing Botox and wrestling every Friday afternoon? No. So that's where those average numbers are almost irrelevant. So then here's that other example that PIUC is 32 patients per day, and they're collecting more like $700,000, you know, $800,000. They should not make the same as that other PA. So really, the average data is extremely limited. We talked a moment ago about putting our things in perspective. Never say your percentage without the physician percentage, and never talk about negotiations without emphasizing their profit level. I think with this package, You'll keep $250,000 after all the costs are paid. 
What were you hoping to make from my services? More like a million. What are they going to say to that question? Okay, so think about how you're phrasing your negotiations. Turn to some negotiation skills to remember. You want to negotiate with the owner of the practice. You do not want to go through an office manager. What's one of the tasks, the duties of the office manager? To keep down practice costs. They really have a vested interest in you not getting bonuses, increases, or salary raises. Okay, so you want to negotiate with the physicians of the practice. Key contract points should resemble those of other professional level employees. We talked about that. You really want to set aside time to meet and go over the contract. You want to listen quietly. You want to thank them for meeting with you. You want to review the contract line by line. And again, you need to get a legal opinion. You know, mentally, just like my practice did with me, you need to decide what are deal breakers. And that is a powerful term. This is a deal breaker. I need my health care insurance to start from day one. This is a deal breaker for me. Or I need to ha only work three days a week. I have a little child. This is a deal breaker for me. Okay, that's a powerful term to use during negotiations. Set up a time to go over any package that is offered to you more than once. And you always want to start out by thanking them and beginning with what you like. You need to acknowledge things that the practice absolutely will not budge on and you're accepting of them. Oh, excuse me. Go to your deal breakers and explain why they are deal breakers for you. In the end, you can always reject an offer, you can always accept an offer, and you can always leave a practice. What you don't want to do is come off as unprofessional or burn a bridge because it's a small community. And if you don't think dermatologists sit there at pharmaceutical dinners and badmouth the crap out of the person who didn't accept their salary or left after six months, they do. They talk just like we do, okay? So you need to not burn bridges. There's a right and a wrong way to leave the job. The devil is an email. Email should be no part of your contract negotiations. People will say rude, unacceptable things over email and the internet, like posts and things on the forum, that they would never dare say to your face, okay? No part of your negotiation should happen over email. Email should only be used to set up in-person meetings. Even if they send you all these details, say, hey, what do you think? You'd say, I'd like to go over this in person. Are you available Tuesday at 4 o'clock, okay? Do not do any of your negotiations over email. I guarantee it will not go in your favor. We talked about some of the most successful, highest paid PAs. What are some of the qualities when I talk to some of these PAs? And you know, actually, maybe it was like a year ago, I was totally humble. I had a, a PA who has their own corporation, who works for three different offices as an independent contractor, send me their contracts with three offices, and they were making a crazy high salary. I mean, probably maybe the highest compensated PA I've ever spoken to and they wanted my help to see if they could get higher compensation. I was like, okay, like, we'll try. And you know what? We did. Okay? So definitely being productive, going above and beyond. You know what? There's another PA in my office. When there's a billing question my doctors want to know, they come to me. When there's a staffing problem, they come to me. When one of them needs a favor to take their call, they have never asked the other PA in the practice. I know it would be completely different if I came to them and she came to them and said, I'm going to leave unless. Okay, so you need to make yourself truly essential. 
You need to have a positive working relationship with the staff, the office manager, the billing department. I want my staff to say on the phone, oh, I love Abby. She injected my sis before my date at 2 o'clock the other day. Okay, so everybody in that staff really does need to be your friend. One of the other most important things, and her name is Casey, she um, writes a lot on the forum, is about having your own referral base. When I started on my practice, I did talks, I did leadership, I made sure that I probably have a dozen community PA and NPs who say, see Abby at Dermatology Associates of Lancaster. Not only do I get less resistant patients because they've come from a PA or NP, I have a longer wait than two of the doctors at my practice, and I really feel confident that if I left and went somewhere else, some of them would follow me. And I think that really is an important part of being a highly paid, successful PA. The best highly compensated PAs I know know how to negotiate well. And here's, here's the factor that you can't control. Having a good doctor as your supervising doctor. And that, that's, you know, that's worth something in itself. I like my doctors. I would go out with them. When things have happened in my family, they call me up. All of my doctors can say my son's name and probably his approximate age. All of my doctors would recognize my husband if they saw him in the mall. Those are important. If you really say to yourself, I don't like this person, I don't trust this person, they don't care about me, you're not going to be happy there. Okay, that's part of compensation. So in summary, Put a lot of information, or hopefully I left time to go over a lot of questions. Get a lawyer to look over it. Negotiate with a pessimistic eye. You absolutely need to know what you are worth and have those numbers in your head. Stop thinking and selling yourself as average. You would have never gotten to PA school with that approach. And everybody absolutely needs to have a contract. So let's go over questions. I'll be fine if people slip out. Oh, ask your questions in this open forum. I inevitably have people come up to me all week long, I didn't want to ask this out in the public. Everybody can ask their question as, I have a friend who, okay? Okay, so let's do it at the mic. Feel free to filter um, out of your this is Ooh, that's loud. Um, this is actually my experience at my last job, and I stress my last job. I was there for six years. I had a contract. I also had a maternity policy that was in place a couple years before I had gotten pregnant. And my first pregnancy went great. They didn't expect that I'd have my kids 17 months apart. So with, during my second pregnancy, when I was th on my third trimester, I stressed third trimester and a lot of daycares, there is a 10 to 12 month waiting list in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, my third trimester, they said, oh, we're gonna change your policy. Um, you're not going to be able to take off the 12 weeks that you're allowed to request in your policy. It says that you can request it that doesn't mean we have to grant it. Something else is because, it, so I seek legal advice, and because it was a policy and not a contract, they were allowed to change it. So beware of policies and not contracts. If it was a contract, they would not have been able to change it. Um, so your point is, in your contract, it should clearly state what your maternity leave would have been. Uh, not necessarily, because the, the lawyer said that if it was a contract, if it said contract at the top and not policy, that I would, um, they sh I should be able to take the 12 weeks off. Mm -hmm. But because it said policy, it wasn't able to stand up in court. 
course, the lawyer told me I should sue them because it's discrimination, but I didn't. Um, I also left the practice. They think that I left the practice because my husband got a promotion, but I left the practice really because of how they screwed me over. I just did not want to, I, did, I didn't want to burn any bridges because the physician I worked for, worked for was a popular physician in Charlotte, North Carolina, whose uh, wife is the office manager, so hence don't go work there. Um, but the take-home story is make sure it says that it's a contract and not a policy. Also, if it's the office policy and you're going through the policy, through abiding by the policy manual, they are allowed to change that at any time. Do not have your contract state according to the office manual. That means nothing. Unless it would say the office manual as of February 2nd, this edition. Lawyers said that they can change stuff. They, they can change it. So that would be a great article to write all about your experiences or to, you know, become an SDPA committee member who, like on membership, could put together a resource for other PAs. I can't find any information about maternity leave. I've even contacted the AAPA and they say, oh, we just don't collect that data. So, okay, there's, you come find me. You're it. Okay, go ahead. My question is in regards to PAs who are trying to move to more of a just percentage-based compensation with no base, um, and your feelings or information and all. Sit down. You know, I felt like we were running out of time, or I had those slides in, I ended up taking them out. I do think that is a growing trend amongst experienced dermatology PAs, getting no base salary, but just a percentage of your collections. I think it's an easy sell to say, hey, you know what? Don't pay me unless there's money collected in the bank, and then let's split that money. Averages, I've heard anywhere, honestly, from 40 to 50% to the PA, and the practice keeps the other half. And you know when it's the easiest time to sell that compensation package? With a doctor who's never had a PA, because they don't know what you can collect. No, typically those PAs have insurance coverage, have their malpractice paid for. That means that, you know, Aetna sends $100 to the office for services you performed. You might get 40 and the practice keeps 60. Or you might get 50 and the practice keeps 50. And then out of their $60, they're going to pay your $1,000 CME fund. Does that make sense? If you're an independent contractor and you're not getting any benefits at all, that number should probably be even higher because they're also saving on tax money. Yes. I just have a very quick question. A lot of these numbers are based, are they based on the national average of 4.5 days per week? Is that yes. right? In fact, all that SDPA data was actually based on 32 hours per week average for full-time employment. And including the set salaries and bonus incentives. Okay. And also, with you, do you do personal, you know, on the side discussions as far as, you know, working with people as far as compensation? Um, I, we have a different situation where we have multiple satellite clinics that are run primarily by PAs, where a supervising physician might, alt, you know, go between those clinics. So the overhead is extremely hard to, you know, that threshold point. It's, it's just very difficult to get to, so I'm just curious, do you have PAs that are in situations where it's a you know, multi-doctor practice within one building or satellite clinics that are just PA 
Yeah, and you're, you're saying your threshold to reach is, is just so high, there's no incentive to get there? Right, because, right. I mean, for my own threshold, I have to cover basically my cost of the building, my um, receptionist, my two nurses, because it's pretty much me there five days a week. So if you died tomorrow, would they get rid of one of those satellite offices? Would they really eliminate that rent because you died? They would have to hire someone else, train them in, and the clinic would have to close until a replacement was found. There are some basic inherent costs of doing practice. And in exchange for that, that, that physician, that group, has this practice equity. They have something they could go to a healthcare system and say, would you please buy these offices from me because they're worth something. Unless you're getting part of that worth, you should not be asked to contribute to things like rent, okay? Some of the ancillary staff, if they really do have to have a checkout person 100% for you, there's some of that you should shoulder. Because, you know, look at all those numbers, and we were talking about profit. If profit is really being eaten up by cost, that's something to talk about with them. Can you decrease cost? Are these offices too big? Are there too much staff? Would we be better if we had two providers in one office at a time? In that situation where it is, you know, a big spread out thing, you can absolutely make the offer. I tell you what, you allow me over the next year to make whatever changes I think would make us a financially more secure practice, and any increase in profit will split 50-50. Hey, we have two questions for you. One, are you familiar with the article um, that was in the May, practical, I think it was Practical Dermatology, that showed the AAPA's average salary for, for derm PAs? It was 104000 Is it practical? I think it was practical. I have got it up. In, I've got it up in my room. I can bring okay. it to you later. But they showed that the AAPA's average salary for Durham PAs was 104,000. Right. And you, here's the problem with the AAPA data in a couple ways. Number one, it's just average. None of us are average in this room. In the AAPA survey, how do you determine if you are a dermatology PA? You circle that. So that means there's some PA who's really supervised by a family practice doctor, and they're just maybe doing laser therapy. Okay, so to a doctor, I would say this is not an accurate capture of PAs who are truly working for board-certified, board-eligible dermatologists. Anybody who's filled out the AAPA survey, including myself, they ask you what your salary is. So I would say, you know what, that's people's base salary because that's how they ask it. They do not ask, is this bonus, is this, what are you production-based? They don't get that into it. So in my mind, 104 is the average base salary. My, my other question, and I know you don't like averages, but do you know any idea what the average write-off is? You know, in the JDPA and actually on the forum, there's like a whole Inga LZ, uh, um, like Excel sheet that you can put in there, what's billed, what's collected, and kind of figure out what your office's accounts receivable is. Is that kind of what you're asking me, like how, what percentage of... What percentage of your, what you bill is normally written off? Again, that depends, and it says it in the article. I want to say Ingesel says something like it should be like 80 to 90 percent for a good office. It's going to be a little less if you're billing Medicare. I think I did my last time, and I have a pretty good billing department, and it was like 79 or 82 percent, and I was pleased with that. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. And why is that? Yeah, I mean that's yeah. And I asked my office manager why, and she just said that's because you're you're just seeing Medicaid. Yeah, I, right. So, in which case, do you do you need to have only three Medicaid slots a day? I mean, I'm I'm actually considering dropping Medicare for at least a year. 
because I'm already pissed off at the 85% and now consultation's going away. My wait is five months. I'd like to make it one month. So maybe this is a way I'm personally just me gonna make that decision in my practice. Um, two questions for you. One, for a PA who's going to work part-time in Durham, do you recommend going independent contracting, hourly, you know, salary? How, what do you recommend as the compensation? And then if you were going to be um, compensated by an hourly rate, how do you arrive at that number? Do you just work backward from the figures that... It should just be, you know, a seventh grade algebra problem. If this was my yearly salary, this is how many hours I work, here is my hourly rate. I think that part-time, although the SDPA has never collected part-time data and neither has the AAPA, I think that that really lends itself the best to percentage of collections, which then also allows part-time hours to fluctuate. So the way my contract is written now is I am full-time if I work more than 32 hours a week, and I have to give them six months notice if I'm going to change my hours. So, like a conference, that doesn't count as changing my hours. I imagine, you know, someday when my baby is a little boy and has piano recitals and school concerts, I may say, you know what, I I'm sorry, I have to end at 3 o'clock like all the supervising doctors do. And that's going to affect my bottom line, but it's a decision that I get to make. Does that kind of answer your question? And working with other PAs, have you met any that have become partners in practice? Um, with our physician? You know, I see that more and more, and I've tried to elicit some information. It's been very uh, all over the place, from just saying, hey, you're here so many years, we're going to issue you shares, to you're just going to be an owner. To It's been all over the place, and I haven't been able to kind of get my hand around information to then kind of put back to the general public. It'd be great information to collect for a volunteer of the SDPA to try to interview and gather some anonymous data. That's the other tough part, and it's, it's tough about negotiation in general. It's tough to talk to people about these numbers. Well, what did, what did you do to, to buy in? That's a pretty personal question. So we, we, it would be nice to get someone who's kind of coordinating this on, on a higher level. Um, it's also important to protect the individuals who share that data with you, okay? So what you don't want to do is you sit down and you talk to Monica, and I say, oh, really you're making $150,000 base go back to my doctor and again I'm selling myself and being average and I go do you know Monica down the street makes $150,000 and then her doctor sees my doctor at a meeting and he gives him an earful unacceptable so when someone shares this information with you you need to protect that information okay so talk talk in hypotheticals try to gather that information that's a growing trend it was something my practice talked to me about and I just wasn't interested. I kind of like that threat of, I'm going to walk away. If I'm a partner, obviously, I'm probably not walking away. Okay. Is it worth trying to uh, see about with the tax advantages of trying to go to independent contracting? And is it worth trying to even bring that up with an employer? Independent contracting, you know, it's independent contractors, it's a very interesting situation. Number one, you actually have to do a lot to really, in the eyes of the IRS, be an independent contractor. And there are a lot of PAs and doctors that really are probably being classified as an independent contractor inappropriately and could potentially suffer an audit and fines and jail time for tax evasion. The IRS has like 12 bullets that you must satisfy a majority of 
to be an independent contractor, um, and you can find this on the IRS website. AAPA has some really old data from it, from like 1982. They have some articles, which I think is interesting. That means 20 some you know years ago they were also talking about this. Um, you, you should form a corporation, either an LLC or an S corp or a C corp. Um, typically, you should have a relationship about what overhead is going to be. You should have a written, true kind of contract relationship that makes you an independent consultant. It's really pretty complicated and you really need to satisfy quite a few categories to not leave yourself open to, hey, the IRS might come put me in jail. Having said that, out of the people I know who are independent contractors, they are very well compensated. But it's complicated. They gotta pay their own taxes. They gotta pay their own social security. I mean, you, you really have to be on the ball to do it. You can't just say, hey, just pay me this way. And your employer can get in trouble for tax evasion if you truly don't fit these categories of an independent contractor. I will be around for the next couple days. Have a wonderful lunch and then come to the malpractice lecture tomorrow because that's just as important as having a good contract. So good luck, guys.